And like they meant it, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Wow. If you have your copy of Scripture, find Psalm 19, please. And we're going to read the entire psalm in just a moment, Psalm 19. While you're finding that, a couple of um, fun facts. Um, on this rocket here is uh, here for a purpose. Um, there were several organizations across Huntsville who made rockets like this. The Space and Rocket Center provided these plain white uh, rockets, and every organization uh, was invited to decorate one and to submit it. They've been in what's called Rockets on Parade all during uh, the summer in various places, including the Space and Rocket Center, the park, and lots of places. And, and it wasn't just a, a display, it was a contest. There was a contest and to see who might win. And on Friday afternoon, I got a call from the Space and Rocket Center from Joe Vallely. He already had called Debbie Bell to say that First Baptist Church's Rockets came in first place in the contest. Isn't that great? Dan Smythe, we owe him a big uh, word of thanks. He's the one who did this for us, and so we have been well represented during this celebration of Apollo 11. Um, also, this week, um, I, I found, I had this book, ordered a book. Joe Harris, who's a member of our church, goes to the early service, asked me, have you read the book Lift Off by James Heffley? And I had not. It's titled, um, Astronauts and Space Scientists Speak Their Faith. It was published in 1970. It's out of print now, but I got a used copy. And yesterday, uh, I was on a plane and uh, was reading through the book, and I came to a, a, a chapter titled Huntsville's Space Deacons. And I read about Joe Jones. Joe had never told me this, but the author came down and Joe showed him around and interviewed Joe. And then he mentioned uh, Dr. Lucas, who eventually would become uh, the, uh, Joe was I think training union director at the time. And he said, well, our Sunday school director kind of works out here too. You know, Bill Lucas, who became the director of Marshall Space Flight Center. So this week has just been so much fun uh, celebrating uh, Huntsville's role in uh, one of humankind's greatest, uh, greatest achievements. It's been a really, really fun week. So to all of you, who were or are part of the space program or whose moms and dads were or whose spouses were who had a part in serving your nation and really our world through the space program. Thank you for a job well done. It's, it's a fun, fun be here. Well, let's read, if you have your Bibles open, from Psalm 19. If you'll follow along, please. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour, for, pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. And yet their voice goes out into all the earth, to their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, he has pitched a tent for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul, the statutes of the Lord. By the way, we're, we're talking about, I'll get to this in a moment, a, a quote from uh, Immanuel Kant that, that Werner von Braun often used. There are two things he said that never fail uh, to astonish me. 
the starry skies above me, and the moral law within me. In this text, in Psalm 19, which I should have pointed out before we started reading, we find both. We find references to this glorious creation, the starry sky above us, and to the moral law within us. Here in uh, verse 7, we begin to hear about the moral law. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances or laws of the Lord are sure, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgressions. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock or my strength and my redeemer. The most uh, mystical experience of my life took place on a Saturday night in the sanctuary of the the small sanctuary of the Lucas Grove Baptist Church, the church of my, it's my first pastorate. We lived in a parsonage, which was right next to the church. The parking lot was the only thing separating our house from the church building. And on Saturday nights, I'd walk over uh, to that empty, small sanctuary, and I'd practice my sermon, and I would pray. One Saturday night, um, I, I closed my eyes to pray, and experienced what I, I only know to refer to as a visitation from God. I had this overwhelming sense of God's presence, the likes of which I had not experienced before and have not since. My eyes were closed. I was literally afraid to open my eyes. Now, I know that God is spirit. Kaya, he is breath. But I just felt like, my goodness, if I open my eyes, I'm going to see God. And it's not like I was afraid, physically afraid, but just so overwhelmed I wasn't ready for that. And, and so I stayed in that, in that kind of experience for what must have been, I don't know, a couple of minutes. And then the experience passed. I've not had anything like that happen since. But now if it did happen often, if I lived with this constant, overwhelming sense of God in the room with me, if I, if I all often had that kind of visitation, then explaining to you why I believe in God would not be difficult. But I don't believe in God because I see him visibly or hear him audibly or even because I feel him emotionally. Why then would I believe in a God who is invisible, inaudible, and in many ways quite reserved? Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning, why I believe in God. I, I'm beginning this morning a three-week series, Why I Believe What I Believe. This morning, I'll talk about why I believe in God, and then next week, why I'm a Christian, and then the next week, why I'm a First Baptist Church Huntsville kind of Christian. So why, why do I believe in God? That quote I referred to a moment ago, Dr. Von Braun's uh, favorite quote was a quote, he was quoting Immanuel Kant, a 19th century German philosopher who said, and let me get this exactly right, two things never fail to spark my utmost admiration, the starry sky above me and the moral law within me. 
Two things never failed to spark my utmost admiration, the starry sky above me and the moral law within me. Psalm 19 addresses both, and I want to talk about those two as my reasons for uh, believing in God. First, the starry sky above me. You know, there is this thing called the star registry. You can go there for somebody's birthday if you want to, and you can name a star after them for uh, $39.99. You can name a star. Now, but it, it says, and I looked this morning, it says if you really love them, you'll name a, what was that, a, the big, I've forgotten what some, y'all, you would know, do what? Nebula. How you know, Billy? You bought, have you bought one of those uh, 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 lately? Some big star for $70, you, if you really love them, you can name a big star after them. But before there was a star registry, the Bible says God named the stars. It's interesting to me, at least in Genesis 2, it says Adam named the animals, but he ran out of time. And then Psalm 147 says that God counted and named the stars. I love the story of, uh, of Huntsville, the history of Huntsville. And there's a little book titled The Way It Was, tells the story of a, of a slave in the mid-1800s. His, his name was not recorded. We don't know his name. But he belonged, as was the history, the dark history of those days, he belonged like property to a man named Macklemore. But this slave this, in Huntsville was a mathematical genius. He had never lived far from the home he was born in. He never had formal education. But somebody had taught him the, the elementary rudiments of math. And he could add and subtract and do multiplication of enormous numbers quickly. And people, would, people marveled at him. They would come and try to stump him. They would thrill at his skills. Some professors from Nashville came down. They'd heard about him. They came down to test this guy to see if what they'd heard was true. And they, they gave him these big mathematical problems to work, and he would work them in his head, and they marveled at his skill. And, and then one of them asked him, how many stars are in the sky? And this genius slave jumped up and ran out of the room. Ah, they thought, we've stumped him. When they saw him outside, they said, there was one answer you didn't have. And the slave responded, Oh, yes, sir, I know. There just ain't no words for a number that big. There ain't no words for the number of stars in the, in the sky. Why do I believe in God, the starry sky above me? Sometimes I read numbers that are staggering. There was a NASA story in 2018 titled... Hubble discovers the farthest star ever seen. And red, the star, harbored in a very distant spiral galaxy, and I don't even know what spiral galaxy means, is so far away that its light has taken 9 billion years to reach Earth. Now, I, I understand that the galaxy is made up of millions and billions of stars, and there are millions or billions of galaxies. That's a lot of zeros, there ain't no number, there ain't no words for a number that big. I imagine when we made it to the moon 50 years ago, God smiled because I think he loves it when we love his creation. I think we were playing in his playground that must have pleased him. 
but he also must have smiled like a parent smiles when a, 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 their, their infant discovers their feet. Have you been there? We know when a baby discovers his feet. It's like, this is really cool. And the parents take pictures and videos and post them on Facebook and all that because it's a really neat thing. But the parents know this is just the beginning. And so when we reach the moon, God must have smiled, but he, almost, he also must have smiled the smile of a parent who understands. That was just like an infant touching our toes. There ain't no words for a number uh, that big. You know that I've been uh, studying Dr. Von Braun and so impressed with what I've learned. Here's, he believed in a, in a divine creator. He believed that there's a divine designer. In fact, he was surprised that so many rational people believe that this universe came into being by chance, by random chance. He said, one of the most fundamental laws of natural science is that nothing ever happens without a cause. From nothing, nothing can come. There simply cannot be a creation without some kind of creator. And I like his sense of humor here. There's only one alternative to the conclusion that there is a creator, the assumption of a miracle. And atheists don't believe in miracles. On this day when we remember Apollo 11, I think it's appropriate to hear one more brief, wonderful Von Braun quote. Manned space flight is an amazing achievement, but it has opened for us thus far only a tiny door for viewing the awesome reaches of space. Our outlook through this peephole at the vast mysteries of the universe only confirms our belief in the certainty of its creator. Von Brown died on June 6, June 16, 1977. His grave is marked by a simple headstone in Alexandria, Virginia. On that headstone is written Psalm 19.1. Psalm 19.1 says, The heaven declare, heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Why do I believe in God? The starry skies above me. But there's also the moral law within me. Right and wrong are written on the human heart. I know there are those who disagree about right and wrong, and there are those who dismiss the idea of right and wrong altogether. But right and wrong are written on the human heart. That's what Romans 2 is talking about when it says that God has written his standards on the human heart and in our conscience. Without that, our world would be chaos. Right and wrong are written on our hearts by, by our Creator. Stephen Covey is someone that several of you have read. I have. He was at university once talking to fraternity and sorority young men and women, and, and their topic was what was known then as the new morality, the sense of freedom from right and wrong. He declared that there are moral absolutes, that there are timeless rights and timeless wrongs. They were pushing back and saying that right and wrong is relative, that right and wrong depends on the context and depends on the person. He's, he could see that debate was not going to get him anywhere, and so he suggested that they pause and listen to their hearts. He said, let's be quiet for a while, and would you agree to listen to your hearts? There was some discussion, but they, they finally agreed to be quiet and to listen to their hearts. And after a long time of silence, when the silence was broken, the students admitted that what their hearts had said was not this idea of a new morality, 
but of moral absolutes and timeless right and wrong. The, the moral law is written on the hearts of humans. And so if you, if you want to know if there's a God, then look at the, at the lives of people who know him, I mean really know him. Look at the lives of people who love him, I mean really love him. One pastor told about a college sophomore after three years at college at Christmas during the break, came home and he'd learned so much in philosophy class and psychology class and geology and biology that, that he was going to enlighten his parents. They were people of deep faith. They were religious people. And he was ready to, he wouldn't have used these words, but to dismiss and debunk their, their religion to help them understand what he had come to understand. To, to help them out of that trap, you know, of this outmoded, outdated, old-fashioned religion. They had dinner. They went to the living room and um, sitting by the fire, he was waiting for the right moment to, to enlighten them. He looked over at his mother and saw the, the deep lines in her face and in her hands. And he remembered the, the struggles of life that she had fought and won because she was a a religious person, a person of deep faith. He looked over at his dad and remembered the addiction that almost destroyed his dad and almost destroyed their home and remembered how that it was because of his faith, his religion, that he had overcome that addiction. And the college sophomore was wise enough not to bring up the idea of dismissing and debunking their faith. For what he had learned in school paled in comparison to what he knew of the life of two people who knew God and loved God. If you wonder if there's a God, then look at the life of somebody who knows him, I mean really knows him, loves him, I mean really loves him. And there's beautiful evidence of our Creator. Why do I believe in God? Well, because of the starry skies above me and the moral law within me written on your heart and mine. But why religion anyway? Why is religion so important? Why? I know there are atheists, those who don't believe in God, and there are agnostics who say we can't know, and skeptics who would say I don't know. By the way, there are a lot of agnostics and skeptics and atheists who are really good people. And there are people who believe, who have questions for which there are no answers. A lot of us have asked why why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God not intervene? Why, why evil in the world? And, and lots of us have wavered and lots of us have had doubts even. So I know that there are agnostics and skeptics and atheists and, and even those of us who believe have questions. But I also know that throughout history and all around the world, the overwhelming majority of people have known, just known, because we are wired to know that there is to quote an old gospel hymn, somebody bigger than you and I. And I know the stories like the story of Russia. For decades, people like Karl Marx said to the Russian people, there is no God. Religion, he said, is an opiate, it's a drug for weak people. Teachers said to their students, God is just a figment of your imagination. He is a projection of your desires. Over the communist airwaves, people said, religion is a, the propaganda of, of capitalist politicians. 
When Apollo 8, when Borman and the others read Genesis from Apollo 8, Russia publicly scoffed and said it was a sign of weakness. But I've been to Russia, and I've, I've, I've met men who spent years in prison because of their faith. I've met the babushkas, the, the grandmothers, who wouldn't let religion in their families die. I've seen churches that are vibrant because you can yell to people, there is no God, but you cannot yell loud enough to silence the, the whisper of the creator in the human heart, I am. Religion, according to the, the linguists, is a combination of, of two things, really. The, word, the, the prefix re, which of course means again, and ligare, which means to connect, like a lig ligament connects. Religion is almost a verb to re-connect or to connect again. Because our overwhelming tendency to do the wrong thing has separated us from our Creator. Religion is, is the reconnection. If you will, it is, it is coming home. Back to Apollo. Bill Henson was, um, is the late father of our own Kathy Hicks. He was a well-known Methodist pastor, pastor of the largest Methodist church in the world. He preached here when uh, Dr. Langley was here. In his book, Solid Living, he tells the story of the wife of an Apollo astronaut. After the um, Apollo flight, uh, an interviewer interviewed um, this wife of the astronaut, the Apollo astronaut, and there was always a lot of interest in the spouses of the astronauts, and asked her, um, what was the most exciting moment in your husband's flight? Was it, he asked, when there was a successful liftoff and he left the Gravity of earth? No, she said. Was it, he asked, was it when they landed and he stepped onto the moon? No, she said. Was it, was it maybe when they left the moon successfully and you knew they were successfully on their way back? No, she said. The interviewer, a little bit puzzled, asked her, then what was the most exciting moment of your husband's flight? She answered, it was, when he, it was when he stepped his foot onto that ship that plucked them from the ocean. He had taken flight, he'd been on an adventure, but he had come home. And I wonder if someone watching by television or someone even in this room might need to come home. Until you do, there will be something missing that seems empty. St. Augustine prayed that prayer. God, you created us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you.
This thing the Bible calls sin, this overwhelming tendency to do the wrong thing has separated us from God. Now, next week, I'm going to talk about that reconnection and how we get reconnected, and that's through Jesus. But today, today we, we remember the moral law within us. And we remember the starry sky above us. That expansive universe, that majestic, that majestic number of stars for which there's no, there just ain't no words. Today we celebrate the moral law within us and the starry sky above us.